Ghostly Thistle presents The Antique Shop Episode 12 The Ambition It had been unusually quiet in the shop for days, stretching to a week or two. I was beginning to think the invisibility on the shop front was malfunctioning, so even the people who needed to be inside were missing it. But Christ, the shop is boring without customers. There's only so much you can clean and reorganise. That hasn't stopped Reed for trying, although anything he seems to do only riles Finn up and the insults are relentless between the two. Mongrel this, mongrel that, and Reed can never find a better comeback than stop calling me that. It's painful to watch. Kronos and I leave them to it, whilst we play cards on the glass counter. I know how weird that sounds, but somehow it works. Denny ask me why. He and I have come to a truce both realising it's better to stick together than get embroiled in the constant bickering of the other two. Every time a fight breaks out between the two roasters, we roll our eyes at each other over the top of the strange vintage-looking deck that I found in a wicker basket at what was arguably the perfect time. He's even been teaching me how to play double solitaire, but I still haven't been able to beat him once. My ego's been taking a massive hit but it keeps the boredom away. A fight had just broken out between the two roasters. Finn had snapped at Reed that he'd cleaned the same spot a thousand times, along with his signature insult mongrel, and Reed had argued that it was better than doing nothing. Kronos was on his 50th winnie the day, or it felt like it, when the bell resounded round the shop. It felt like it had been ages since I'd heard it even though every time I go in the shop it echoes round. There is definitely a different sound to it when a customer opens the door. The young lad who came in must have felt self-conscious, as all four of us stopped what we were doing to stare at him, marvelling that it was still possible to get a customer. He hesitated at the door, feeling our scrutiny weigh down upon him until he cleared his throat, straightened his shoulders and began to stride towards where Kronos and I were at the counter. Snapping out of my amazement, I scrambled with the cards on the table, shoving them over to Kronos. I mean, playing double solitaire with a talking cat may be my new normal, but it probably wasn't his. This lad was well-dressed, clean-cut and probably in his early thirties. You know, the office type. He arrived at the counter and without a wordy greeting he snapped a familiar white card down on the glass and stood there. I didn't really even need to look at the business card to know it had the madam's name on it but I glanced at it anyway and then back up to the lad with a new level of curiosity. What could he want with a madam? He didn't have the look that I'd come to associate with a special customer. There was no deer in headlights, there was no looking round the shop in awe. He just stood there, staring at me expectantly. I'd half expected to hear the words that usually went with a card, 
but he kept his mouth closed. I told him to follow me up the stairs, which is what I assumed he wanted. Did he think I was a mind reader? Along with the creaking of the stairs beneath our feet, I could hear the leather of the man's brand new looking shoes groan as we ascended. In no time I was sitting on the floor, in my usual spot, but he'd taken the position on the customer's sofa, the madam in her position, facing him, hearing things I could only imagine. She began in the predictable way of asking him what she could help him with. I'd just started to pour the tea when he answered that someone was casting a spell on him to make him look bad at work. I lost my grip on the teapot and it went spout first into the side of the teacup with such an enormous clang I thought I'd wake the deed. I was surprised to find the teacup still in one piece when I managed to get hold of the pot. I muttered an apology before continuing to pour, two-handed. My boss asked him what made him so sure, to which he explained that he was familiar with the UC magic and that nothing about recent events in his life had been normal. I've given up on no staring at the customers by this point. He was the first customer I'd seen to ever outright admit the existence of something supernatural, like magic. For what I'd seen, they were usually reluctant to admit anything like that. I suppose I shouldn't have been so shocked. It's obvious by now that there are quite a few people in the know about these things. I'm just no one of them. Madame Norna encouraged him to give her some more details. I half expected him to take out a list. He explained that he'd had a presentation to give at work the previous week. He'd furiously prepared for it. But come the morning of said presentation, he woke up no being able to speak. Someone else on his team had to do it in his stead. He claimed he'd been fine the night before, and after the presentation the voice had come back. On days where he'd be ahead of his work schedule, his computer had suddenly crash with no explanation, wiping everything he'd done despite regular saves. After a moment's pause to take a sippy tea, my boss inquired if he knew the identity of whoever was trying to interfere with him. Apparently, a lot of people at his work stood to gain by his failure and that it could be any of them. That was a bit of an exaggeration, I thought at the time. Surely no every office employee has the means and knowledge to go around sabotaging their colleagues. Especially when he was claiming this to be magic and no tomfoolery. He told us he worked at Robertson and Son on the fourth floor, as if we'd know what that meant. Madame Norna finished her tea and handed the empty cup back to me, never taking her gaze for the lad, thinking or scrutinising, you can never tell which. But I know by now what happens after these moments of silence, and I prepared myself to be sent to fetch something in the cabinet he wonders. She informed him that she could give him an amulet that would block any enchantment used against him, and that the price was the magic book he kept in his pocket. She really has a talent for always keeping me on my toes. You think she's going to say one thing, and she adds one of those revelations of hers onto the end? The lad immediately covered the breast pocket of his suit jacket, where I assumed this book was hiding. I thought it must have been a small book if he could fit it in there. None of these elaborately decorated, leather-bound encyclopedias you see in films. 
He began to shake his head violently in refusal, claiming if she took it, he'd be helpless. The madam pointed out that the amulet would keep him safe from all spells, and that with it he'd have no need of casting spells of his own to protect him. This time, her tone was icier. Her eyes narrowed ever so slightly in warning. I could tell by this look that something worse would happen to him if he kept the damn thing. Reluctantly, like a bear and forced to share their favourite toy, he reached into his pocket and pulled out this wee leather-bound book. It looked more like a miniature Bible, or a book for the Victorian era, of which there were a few hanging round the shop. It had a creased and cracked brown cover, discoloured in some places with heavy use, and tied round the middle with a cord. It had signs of wear and age, but was resilient enough to still look usable. A few more moments of silence ensued as he looked lovingly at this book of his, like the madam had asked him to part with his soulmate. The facade, for a moment, melted away as he became human the professional veneer cracking just a wee bit. His inner turmoil was obvious, even to me, and it made me even more curious to see what was inside that book. He was so torn, I honestly thought he'd refuse and leave without a solution. But in the end, he crumpled, as they all do. My boss instructed me to go to the cabinet, to a drawer on the left-hand side, and there should be an amulet inside. I was hoping this amulet would be obvious to find because I'd never seen one before. For all I knew, it could have been a crystal duck. My confusion was further piled onto when I realised I'd never seen drawers inside the cabinet, only shelves packed with mysterious vials and boxes. But, sure enough, as I opened the doors, there was a set of tiny drawers right where she said there'd be. I didn't understand that cabinet, I swear, every time I go in, it's like a different experience. These drawers were no bigger than matchboxes or jewellery compartments and slid open with unusual ease. Inside was what I'd call a brooch, triangular in shape, with gold on the outside and a large raw amethyst in the middle. Round the edges of the triangle was writing I didn't recognise and had no hope of understanding. Without further word or discussion, the brooch was exchanged for the lad's book and he went on his way. And I thought that was the end of it. I should probably know better by now. Just the next day, as the fighting was about to reach a new crescendo, a petite lassie blew into the shop, pointed toe heels and tailored suit telling me that she and the lad for the day before were related. No by blood, but by problem. Madame Norna, after a brief conversation, procured an almost identical amulet to the one she'd given to the lad, except this one had rose quartz in the middle, and she was released back into the wild, less one battered old brown spellbook. I sat with the madam a while after the lassie had gone, staring at the two identical books, too afraid to touch them, but wanting desperately to know what was inside. I queried aloud what this Robertson and Son was, and if they handed out spellbooks to all employees. Was it possible that the lassie had been the one casting the spells on the lad, and vice versa? Knew that they'd both had their toys confiscated, would the problem stop? 
I told my boss that Robertson and Son was a relatively successful technology company with offices in the area. I also knew, for some of my pals, it was highly competitive to get into. That was probably why once in, you had to fight to get ahead. And what better way than by casting spells to make your colleagues trip up? That still didn't quite explain where they'd got them fee in the first place. My boss eventually spoke, telling me she needed me to run an errand for her the next day. I was to take Reed, and we were to talk to the first customer again at the company, and ask him if he knew any more of the books and where they were. I've never been allowed outside during shop time before, and I'd be lying if I said I wasn't excited. I also didn't mind having Reed with me. I could always use him as a shield and get away if anything should happen. The building that Robertson and Son has their offices in is a pretty typical red brick, five-storey eyesore that lines many a street in the town. Reed and I both stood outside, craning our necks to look up at the pristine windies and discoloured blinds, as if we both expected to see something out of the ordinary, plastered in full view. When is it ever that easy? Reed queried how we should get in, since we couldn't just walk inside. Unlike him, I'd been thinking of that issue for the entire journey, and knew exactly how. We'd walk in and ask. When I said this to him, he scoffed, but when I began to stride towards the doors, it soon became a muffled, grumbly disapproval. Mimicking the two customers who'd come to the shop, I squared my shoulders and marched straight over to reception and stared at the lad sitting behind it. I introduced myself as though I were meeting someone important and explained that we were both there for an internship position. I'll admit, there was a part of me that thought this wouldn't work. But to my stifled surprise, we were both handed visitors' badges and directed to the third floor. Swiping the badges for the lad's hand, I put mine round my neck with pride. Reed and I went over to the elevator and piled in with the other employees. Instead of getting off on the third floor, we both remained until the fourth. Just before we could get off with the employees, Reed grabbed my arm and pulled me back whispering that we couldn't just wander round like lost lambs. He had a point, but what else were we supposed to do? I ignored him and darted out the elevator, forcing him to follow with his typical scowl. The elevator opened directly onto an open-plan office. Almost as soon as the doors closed behind us, it was like we'd entered a vacuum. It reminded me a lot of when you're underwater. You can hear others swimming or jumping in, even conversations, but all of it's slow, muffled beyond recognition. The noises of the computer fans hung thickly, a lethargic whirring of the photocopier. But that was it. No one was talking, no one was at someone else's desk having a quick chat. It was lifeless. Reed shouldn't have worried about someone noticing us because no one took their eyes for their screens. I was beginning to think these weren't people at all, and that this modest electronics company was the first in the world to have the most human-looking robots anyone's ever seen. Their eyes were glued to their computers, hands resting on mouses, or fingers flying over keyboards. 
I began to scan the faces and backsay heads in search of the first customer, even the second. It was the lad who I saw first, and after nudging Reed, we both wound our way over to his desk by the wall, separated from his colleague by a grey felt board that charts and tables were pinned onto. I knocked on it, and when his eyes caught sight of his, he asked accusingly why we were there. Thinking time may be short before we were caught, I questioned if he knew anyone else in the office who may have a similar spellbook to the one he had. He gave me an indignant look, eyes glancing to his computer screen where yet more tables and graphs were, before dismissively answering he wouldn't know as he didn't talk to anyone. When I attempted to press him, he rudely told us to leave him be. Before I could try a final time, I felt a shock in my fingertips, like static electricity. Assuming I'd brushed against Reed's coat, I snapped my eyes to him because it was his stupid coat. But he wasn't looking back. His eyes were scanning carefully round the office at the other people, the muscle in his jaw protruding against his skin. It was like watching an animal look for predators, and it made my palms sweat. When he confessed that something didn't feel right, it was hard not to agree. Ever since leaving the elevator, there'd been an oppressive force hanging in the air like a bad smell. I looked where he did, at the screens, at the heads, at the coffee cups and pen holders. Then I saw it, in the other corner of the office, in front of the door that led to the stairs. A perfect sphere of electricity, as though it were a plasma ball without the glass. Jagged spikes of purple and blue darted out for the centre, a burning mass of reds, violets and greens. The heavy atmosphere became more oppressive, static permeating every inch of space, like the hours before a summer storm. Every darty electricity out of the centre was a different colour, a different shade, fanning out randomly. It began to move backwards towards the door, until it was gone, some of the atmosphere away it. Before I realised what was happening, I found myself halfway across the office, in its direction, and heard Reed's curses fade behind me. Bursting through the door to the stairs, I noticed it on the next flight up, and so began our chase. Up and up we climbed, but no matter how many stairs we took in each stride, it was like we were running in a dream unable to catch up with it. The climb was never-ending. One flight of stairs was the same as the one before and the one before. And that's when it hit me, and I stopped abruptly halfway up. My lungs were burning, my throat dry, and my legs screaming in pain. But just hold on a minute here. Didn't this building only have five floors? We'd started on the fourth and had run at least ten times the amount of stairs that should have been there to reach the top. I slid over to the banister and looked up, an immeasurable number of stairs stretching up into infinity. This building had no top. I told Reed, who was hanging on the wall for dear life as he panted frantically. I was all ready to collapse onto the stairs and never get back up, 
But when I looked to the top, there was a door. I didn't remember ever seeing a door on the countless other floors we'd ran past. Gulping in air like it was going out of fashion, I dragged myself towards it, hearing Reed's frustrated growl as he followed. The door was pitch black, no a gleam or shine to it. The handle was silver, unassuming, but I still hesitated before reaching for it. A part of me expected it to be locked, and I'm sure I groaned aloud when it opened. I let it swing forward, feeling like I was safer behind the threshold than over it. It was gloomy inside, my eyes taking a moment to adjust and see. It was an office space, just like the one a thousand floors doon, but this one was empty. No furniture, plants, computers or printers. Just squares a dull grey carpet and wee windies on the far side, looking out into nothingness. It was daylight outside, but you would have thought it was dusk in that room. I scanned round for the plasma ball I'd seen before, the one I'd run a marathon after. Gingerly, I stepped into the room, followed closely by Reed. I could have swore neither of us were breathing. I eventually noticed the ribbonsy lightning, except this time they were coming for a lassie who stood in the middle of the empty room where there'd been nothing before. I inhaled through my teeth and stood still, feeling the static return. Trying to fight through the oppressive atmosphere, I distracted myself by looking at this lassie who was leaking lightning. Now, obviously, the slashes of purple electricity rolling after were unusual, but so was the way she was dressed. I know the 60s are constantly trying to make a comeback, but the attention to detail was impressive. The weird hairstyle to the doll-like makeup and vintage printy or drably coloured dress. Some people commit to the vintage lifestyle, or so I thought. I asked her who she was, through tightened jaw, feeling every hair on my body rise. It was like standing under an active pylon. At first, she let my question echo round the room, swallowed by the electric atmosphere. I thought she wasn't going to answer me. The crackle in her eyes made me more certain she'd hurt us. But then, she began to tell us her story. She used to work in the building before, a woman in a man's world. She clawed and climbed her way up until she was the one getting all the promotions and important work. But women didn't get very high, especially no above their male colleagues. She was envied, looked down upon, judged. To them, she was a jumped-up secretary. Her real place was answering phone calls and smiling. They tried to undermine her at every corner, and one day it worked. One mistake was all it took for her to go tumbling down the mountain, rolling past the smiling faces of these men. They let her go for the company after all the work she'd done, all the hours she'd sacrificed. But she wouldn't leave the company, no after all that effort. Now, by this point, I began to think, a man's world. 
Men thinking women shouldn't be successful were only good as secretaries. That doesn't fly these days. That sounds more like back in the days when women used to dress like her. And I'd just been downstairs. There were at least as many women as men. She was nae... She was nae a ghost, was she? So embittered by her dismissal for a job that was her life that she'd lingered at the company. Ghosts aren't real, right? I mean, memories, or whatever the madam called them, are one thing, but ghosts that shite electricity is another. Then there came the problem of what she was doing in the building if she'd been there for 50 years. All the men she was bad-mouthing were long gone, if not deed by this point. Then she went on to tell us about this woman who'd visited her. A mysterious woman she'd never seen before, dressed in well-fitted clothes whose colours didn't complement or match, and whose dark hair was pinned straight and bluntly cut. She'd offered to help, and had handed over a small leather book filled with curses and spells. She'd wanted nothing in return, and after giving her gift, she'd left and had never returned. Upon receipt of this gift, the embittered ex-employee had set about getting her revenge on the men she thought had torn her down. She held this spellbook in her hands, identical to the ones Madame Norna had confiscated for the customers. How was that possible? The woman still had the one she'd been gain, so how could two or more people have it as well? The atmosphere had grown almost unbearable by this point, and Reed fell to his knees beside me, purple ribbons of electricity practically rolling off him. I reached out for him, hoping that my meagre immunity would help him. Thankfully it did, and he was just able to get back to his feet. I checked with the woman that she'd somehow been giving out these books to the employees downstairs. She seemed affronted. I wouldn't think it was her. Of course she'd given them out. They thought just because they'd been gaining jobs that they were safe, but that wasn't true. She claimed she was doing them a favour. By giving them the power to harm each other's work, she was teaching them not to be so complacent and not to trust each other. She was preventing what happened to her happening to them. Twisted logic, I know. This woman may have looked like anyone in the street, a woman doing the club on cheesy Fridays, but there was something very inhuman about her. Obviously, people in the club didn't usually have electricity oozing for them, yet it was something more than that. It was like she was a shadow of someone, the worst parts of a decent, hard-working woman left behind. She was something closer to a shell, with no real substance. All she knew was hatred and bitterness, and it no longer mattered who it was directed at. I told her she couldn't stay in the building, tormenting the employees below. Just because she'd been in an office full of arseholes didn't give her the right to turn other colleagues against each other. She didn't like this. The pressure in the room wound up until I could see the slashes of purple electricity snapping at my fingertips. She refused to leave, screamed it. 
feeling the weight of a storm edging ever closer. I'm beginning to feel like I was constantly getting shocked by static electricity for a shitty Christmas jumper. I shouted back at her to fuck off. There was a thunderous crack. No one like what you'd hear during a thunderstorm. And for a moment I thought the concrete floor beneath us had gain way. But afterwards the tension, the electricity hovering in the air, dissipated. We breathed a sigh of relief until we noticed that there was a crack in the floor. A small sliver at first for underneath the woman. We a deafening ripping it began to grow and edge its way closer to us. One blink, it was five metres away. The next, three. The next, an arm's length. By the time we both turned to run through the door to escape, I think we both knew it was too late. The ground vanished beneath us, and we fell like we were in a dream. Gravity had gone, the air had vanished, and all there was to see was darkness until I realised that darkness was the inside of my eyelids. I peeled open my eyes, worried about what I was going to see. Light shone in through the large, sparkling windows to illuminate the landing of the stairs. We were on the top floor, looking towards the door to the offices and desks beyond. There were no more flights of stairs, no never-ending floors above. Had I imagined all that? Had I blacked out somehow for running up one flight of stairs? I was just about to ask Reed when I noticed something on the ground rolling towards the stairs. It was a small purple marble, not unlike something you'd get in a Christmas cracker. Before it could disappear forever down the stairs, I lunged for it and inspected it. It was a purple violet colour, no one like that a plasma ball and the strange power that had been rolling off that woman. Reed came over to inspect it, and we gave each other a questioning look. At least I knew I hadn't imagined the whole thing. The only thing to do with it was to take it back to the shop, and to the source of all answers. Upon reaching the shop, the madam was waiting upstairs, with fresh tea brewing on the table, and I swore I could see the sliveriest smile as we walked in. We relayed what had happened and handed over the marble before waiting for answers. She explained that the woman was a shade, which wasn't really an explanation at all. Even Reed didn't jump in as he usually does. A shade is a kind of dark doppelganger, something that's born from a person's intense bitterness or hatred. Eventually it consumes the person who it initially came from, and it never dies. Trapping it is the only way to stop it. Apparently me telling it where to go was good enough. My triumph is limited though, as if all it takes is a marble to keep it in check, was it really that dangerous to begin with? The madam announced she'd put it in storage, which raises even more questions. Does the shop have a basement I've never been to? And if so, what the hell's in there? But there is a more pressing question that's been steadily bothering me since this encounter. That woman, that shade, was what, about 50 years old? 
This woman, she described, this philanthropist that gave her the spellbook in the first place. The description bothered me at the time, but it's only now that I've begun to hink that it's gnawing at me even more. Clothes that didn't match, dark, sharply cut hair. I've met this woman, or someone like her, very recently. She sounds a lot like Madame Honora, causing chaos and misery for nothing in return. That sounds like Madame Honora. It sounds exactly like the woman I met in the shop a few weeks ago. So how has she no changed in 50 years? Do all Madame Honoras look the same? I didn't look even slightly like Madame Norna, but is it different for your opposite? Or is there something more sinister and unpleasant going on here? No doubt I'll find out eventually, but for now, best not to think on it. The young lad who came in must have felt conscious. Self-conscious. Conscious. I hope he was conscious. <laughs> I hope he was conscious when he walked into a shop. Jesus. Oh, no. I'm not even a page into this. I've already found a mistake. Come on. You think she's going to say one thing? And she adds one of those revelations. I oh, yeah. <laughs> fucker. I knew I was going to get through that sentence. Gulping in air like it was going out of fashion. I dragged myself towards it, hearing Reed's frustrated gowl. Gowl? His <laughs> what? His frustrated what? <laughs> Every time a fight breaks out between the two roasters, we roll our eyes at each other over the top of the fucker. <laughs> Bloody hell, how long is that sentence? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Woman... This woman she described, that philanthropist... Oh, don't put big words in when you can't pronounce them. I think that might be my lesson of the day. Philanthropist. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of The Antique Shop. Episode 13 will be released in two weeks' time. If you like this episode, please tell your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support Ghostly Thistle and everything we do, then please head over to our coffee account by searching for Ghostly Thistle on coffee.com and making a donation. If you'd like to get in touch with me about this show, my previous one, or anything else, then my email address is ghostly.thistle at gmail.com or you can visit me on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Ghostly Thistle. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you tune in next time.